And so now here's the part that I'm really struggling with, with kind of different formatting things that we do, is now I want to come back and read the whole scripture again uh, and get you to stand up because I'm just such a creature of habit. Uh, and so uh, we've already done that. But so if we begin this morning, this is a psalm of Asaph and, uh, and this group of psalms. And the psalms of Asaph were typically used as congregational, uh, congregational songs. And so uh, they were kind of positioned together in Israel's hymn book here, which the psalm, book of Psalms is. And, uh, and they would sing them as together as they came together in worship. And so... Uh, you know, a song like this, a hymn like this is akin to uh, Revive Us Again that we would sing today as a, as a song. I would say a newer song, but it's really not a new song. It's a, it's a good hymn. Uh, and so, but it's, it's along those lines. And so, uh, Israel has enjoyed God's blessing. And they sing about that as they go through this hymn. And, uh, and as Israel has enjoyed the blessing of God, he, they've enjoyed it in this sense. In verse number 8, he says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. And the vine, of course, is Israel. Uh, and they have brought a vine out of Egypt. And, uh, and thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedest a room before it and did cause it to take deep root. And it filled the land. Uh, and so when we look at that and we consider that, he, he freed them from the bondage of Egypt. And that's a wonderful thing about God. God has freed us from the bondage of sin. Uh, it is a wonderful thing to know, and I think sometimes we lose sight of, uh, of that in our lives to the point that we just take for granted what God has given us and all that God has made available to us in salvation. So often we equate salvation to simply the salvation of our soul. Uh, and as my soul is saved, of course, I'm birthed into the family of God and I become the child of God, uh, and that I realize that that's, that is, is counter to uh, what the cultural belief is today, that everybody's God's child. That's just simply not true. We're all God's creation, but I did not become a child of God until I was born into his family. Uh, and so Jesus made that abundantly clear whenever he said in the New Testament that you must be born again. Uh, and so I must be born into the family of God to become the child of God. Uh, and so though God created all of us, he wants all of us and has made possible for all of us to become his child. And that's what salvation gives us. And that's often where our focus is. And, uh, and, and, and rightfully so, we ought to put a large emphasis in uh, the reaching of the lost and on uh, the going after those who are lost. And uh, I was burdened for a man yesterday. Sonia and I were knocking some doors down over most of the folks in our church were knocking in that area. Uh, and when I first turned onto the street... <clears throat> There's a little old man out in the front yard, and I, I, I drove uh, all the way to the other end to start because I didn't want to just jump out and pounce on the guy right away. Plus, I was thinking, you know, little old guys like that are just typically, uh, you know, mean and grouchy. Uh, and, and you have to understand, my experience with, uh, with, with people of that age group is, you know, Brother Buck and Brother Dave Barl and Brother Phil. So, I mean, my point of reference is kind of shaded in that direction. And so, yeah, I got that finger going. Uh, and so we started at the other end and we came up and there were a few people out and most people didn't come to the door yesterday and and uh, and when we got there uh, he was 91 years old a World War II veteran he was in an, uh, an army medical and eventually a nurse in World War II and uh, and so he he never gets really much company uh, his daughter was there who lives up in the Livingston area and 
and so she was very talkative, and he grows pineapples in buckets in his driveway, and he wanted to show us those in the pictures, and he polishes rocks and petrified wood, and he wanted to show us those, and he had an eight-year-old beagle that was about uh, so big around, it looked like a bloated tick, and he had to bring the dog out and show us the dog, and, uh, and so, but, uh, but I, I'm burdened for him because I really don't believe with his background religiously that he truly knows God's way of salvation. And so uh, I, I kind of a burden to go back and try to visit with him. Uh, he's got some bad news from the doctors that he's facing, uh, and he's got appointments later this month. And so you pray for a gentleman by the name of Melvin, uh, if you think about him. He's 91 years old, very sweet, very kind, uh, and very welcoming. And so uh, just, uh, just starved for company. And so uh, his wife's passed away, his daughter's uh, husband has passed away, and so they pretty much just have the two of the, each other and uh, don't live that close together. And, uh, and so we're out, and uh, it would be a wonderful thing to see him come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows a lot about the Lord. He's a good man, and he's a, uh, he's a man that I think that I could even look at his life and say that here's a man uh, that at least in the way that he practices his faith is a godly man, uh, though he's lacking that most important part, uh, and that's being the child of God, uh, of knowing that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that my sin has been forgiven, and that, uh, that I have been birthed into God's family. But so often we stop there, and salvation is so much more than that. Salvation is, <coughs> is not just free freedom from the penalty of our sin, but it is free from the bondage of our sin. Listen, Egypt was in bondage to the Egyptians, or Israel was in bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, and so we are in bondage to our sin. And if Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior this morning, if you put your faith and trust in him and you know him and you're his child, he loves you. But that does not mean that you are not willingly staying in bondage. Many times in the Christian life, we struggle and we fail simply because we are not willing to let go of the chains. We like to go back to Egypt. Look at what Israel did throughout their history. They're always, and they come out, they cross the Red Sea, they endured all of that. They had all of that, uh, those miraculous things that were done for them. And then they're, they're at the first sign of trouble, they want to go back. They want to go back to what they know. They want to go back to what uh, they've experienced. They want to go back to all of those things. Listen, he freed them from the bondage in Egypt. And they sing about that here in verse 8 and verse 9. He prepared a place for them. And this is the beauty of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ did not just pay for my sin and did not just save my soul. He has prepared a place for me. And he is preparing a place for me. And so I, I, when, I, when I leave this life, whether it be today uh, or whether it be some years from now, there is a place prepared for me. And I don't have to worry about getting there and having to stay in the tent across the street outside because he will not call me home until my place is ready. So, but there's a place prepared for me here too. God did not save our soul and God did not create us Without a plan and without a purpose, there is a reason for our existence. There is something specific that God wants you and I to do to accomplish. And some of those things are, uh, are, congru are concurrent. They're, they run together. Some of those things apply to all of us. But then there are other things that apply to every individual specifically. Uh, that I have to be careful there to not say specifically. I used to have this guy from the Northwest that worked for me. Uh, when I ran a boys' home, that was, he taught in the school, and he always said specifically. So we.
got in the habit of, uh, of saying it just to give him a hard time. And I have to watch it. Sometimes it slips out that way. Uh, and so, but God ha- has a specific purpose for your life and a specific plan for my life. That's what God has for us. So he, he came to them and he freed them from their sin and he freed them from their bondage. And then he firmly established them in their new life. Notice what he says in verse number nine. He says, thou preparedest room before it and did cause it, talking about the vine, to take deep root and it filled the land. <coughs> I tell about <clears throat> the story about the kudzu in East Tennessee and Georgia uh, from time to time. And it certainly applies here. And uh, pre-World War II, there was a lot of erosion problems on the mountains on the sides of the road in the, in the southeast. And they brought in from Japan a vine called kudzu and if you drive in that part of the country today it has taken over everything it's it's it's, i don't even know many of the trees that it gets on eventually die because it just chokes them out but it gets up the trees and on the sides of the road and they've tried everything to get rid of it they've cut it they've they poisoned it they've tried uh you know roundup or whatever commercial version of it that they've got and it just survives and thrives it comes back it has taken deep root in Israel, and the psalmist here talks about, Asaph talks about uh, that you brought us out, you brought the vine out of Egypt, and you prepared a place for us, and you caused us to take deep root. That's what God wants to do with our lives. God doesn't want to just take us out of sin to flounder. He wants to bring us out of sin to flourish. He wants us to live a life that is flourishing in the grace of God. Uh, that is uh, that's that's that is able to uh, to go out and to live life and to serve God and to make an impact for the cause of Christ and that's what He's done for them. But they have a problem here. <coughs> God has made those things available, but they are not flourishing. They're there, they're rooted, but they're not producing. They're not productive. They're having problems. See, God prepared a place. He moved the enemy out. But when they let themselves slide away from God, then the enemy returns and becomes a thorn in their flesh. And God had told them that back in the book of Judges, whenever they did not, and, or Joshua rather, when they did not uh, completely fulfill God's plan to take the promised land, then God said, okay, this is enough. The time of conquering is over And that sin which you have left behind is going to be the sin that is going to become a thorn in your flesh. And by the way, I I do believe that that is something that applies to our Christian lives today. I'm a firm believer that when I first got saved, when I first come to the Lord, times of revival and renewal that God gives us an opportunity to root out some deeper problems. You hear people that have sins that are very difficult to get past they get saved and it's just like god took away the desire and then other people that have been saved for years still struggle with that very thing well what's the difference well i'm not trying to paint with a super broad brush here this morning but at least consider the idea that there's an opportunity whenever i first come to know the lord or when i've been away and revival comes that god in his grace and mercy can look at me and say let me help you with this thing that's been a problem it's not like they never went back and fought those people and, and won victories. But those constantly, those victories flared up. And from time to time, those problems reared up. And when I give my heart to Christ, 
God's plan is for me to get fully immersed in the Christian life, to be fully educated and, and indoctrinated, if you will, and, and discipled into the image of Christ. Not that I'm all of a sudden I've been through a 12 or 13 week study course with, a, uh, with some individual attention and all of a sudden I'm some kind of a super Christian. No, that's, that's not it. But I have the tools, I have the equipment to begin to win the battle. When I have the biblical knowledge and understanding of what God wants to accomplish in my life, and they experience that here, Asaph writes about that, uh, but yet they are not flourishing. The enemy is being a problem to them. They have turned and drifted away from God. Now, I believe this. I don't believe that they had a hard turn. <clears throat> we are, as a nation, trying to take a hard turn uh, politically today. But I don't believe that that's what most Christians do in their spiritual life, nor do I believe that that's what Israel typically did. It's more of a drift. In other words, God brought them out of Egypt, and they, of course, had their struggles, and then they wandered for 40 years, and then they won their victories in the promised land, and they were worshiping God at that point. They were serving God at that point. They were committed to God at that point. And then all of a sudden in Judges, we get this cycle that starts. When that generation of people dies off that fought the battles, that won the battles, when they're gone and God becomes again a distant memory and a, an object of worship rather than a personal God with whom they interact and have relationship with, then they get into this vicious cycle that you see all through the book of Judges where they sin against God, they stray from God, God calls out to them, they won't get right, then God sends punishment and judgment then God <clears throat> sends a battle and gives them victory, and then God gives them a period of rest, and then they begin to drift away again. And this cycle just repeats itself. And you watch close and tell me that that cycle doesn't repeat itself in our lives every day, all the time. That, that's the cycle of our spiritual life. Why is it that as a pastor and as a staff that we come together, we get our heads together, and we uh, maybe try to revamp things occasionally, or we uh, schedule in guest speakers for revival meetings and things of that nature? It's so for the purpose of combating in our normal human existence the tendency to just kind of drift away from God and to get comfortable. And when we drift from God, we find ourselves in the same dynamic that Israel is in here. They have drifted. It's not like they just were serving God with all their heart one day, that they loved God with all their heart one day, and then they just got up the next day and said, okay, God, we're tired of this. We're just going to go live it up for a while. We're just going to go feed our flesh for a while. We're just going to go do all the things that we know displease you for a while. That's not their, that's not their method. Their passion for God faded. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is your passion for God fading? Can you look back to where you were maybe six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, and can you say that your passion for God is as great today as it was then? Can you look back to the time when, when God really impacted your life and say that my passion for God today is as great as my passion for God was when it was at the height of my Christian life. It should be. It should never be regressing. We should never have a love for God that is fading. But if I don't work at it and if I don't cultivate it, it will fade. You see it play out in relationships. You see people that have been married 
20 and 30 and 40 years get divorced? Why? Because they allowed their love to fade. They allowed their life to take over their relationship. They allowed their circumstances to dominate what they did and how they operated. And they forgot in the midst of the busyness of life, each other. And when the kids moved <clears throat> and retirement came, they found out that they were living with a stranger. God should not be a stranger to us. We should stay close to him. And they come here and they turn to disobedience and then their disobedience after they fade and become disobedience, disobedience turns to outright revolt. And if we're not cautious, <coughs> we easily can drift into a mode where, where we just kind of wane in our spirit and our walk with God for a while and then uh, all of a sudden we get emboldened and we, and we decide to go a step farther and we begin to be disobedient willfully to God until finally when God comes knocking on our heart and the Holy Spirit's conviction comes, we just outright revolt against it and we're done. It's a very easy cycle to see in the scripture. It repeats itself over and over and over again. I believe it repeats itself so often because we repeat it so often. It is a constant reminder. It is a lesson to us to maintain and to be building our relationship with the Lord. And so they're going through this problem and they've embraced now. Not only have they revolted against God, but what you see throughout their history. And here is no exception is that they have embraced the gods of the world. So now it's not that they've stopped seeking for divine assistance. It's not that they've stopped seeking something or someone to worship, but they have now turned from worshiping the true and living God that had saved their soul, that had delivered them from bondage and have turned to the gods of this world. And tell me that that's not taking place in our churches today. It may not look exactly like it looked to them, but it's the same in principle. And in their rebellion, God sent oppressors and captors. But when they realized the predicament, they called out to God. And that's the beauty of what God gives us here is that if I find myself this morning in a place where I have a, a relationship with God that is not as, as tender, as compassionate, as loving, as burning, as hot as it once did, that the time for God's intervention and the time for restoration is not whenever I have ended up in complete revolt or am uh, and under the judgment of God, it's now that I want to seek him. And in their rebellion, God sent these oppressors and then they turned to him. And you see it here three times in this, in this Psalm turn in verse three, turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Now, Salvation that he's talking about here is not salvation of the soul. It is salvation from the enemy. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, first and foremost, you need the salvation of your soul. But if you're here as a Christian this morning and your life for God, your love for God, your fervor for God has waned, you need salvation from the enemy. You need salvation from your flesh. You need salvation from the gods of this world and the oppressions of this world. You may need salvation from relationships that are unhealthy in your life uh, for God to intervene in them. But he says here, turn again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine. <coughs> I need the glory of God. I need the face of God shining on my life. And three times. 
Verse number 7, turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 19, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Listen, God wants to turn our hearts to him. Are we willing to allow our hearts to be turned? Now, we talk about that. We start this morning by, by saying, how do I define term? term uh, turn is a very simple word. It's something that's really not that difficult for us to uh, to grasp, but as simple as it seems on the surface, it has over 30 different variations of its definition. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through 30 definitions this morning. I'm just going to give you two primary thoughts about, uh, about turn, uh, and it is this. To turn means to alter or change for one, from one purpose or effect to another. It also means more simply a change of direction. And so uh, I'm going down Archer Road and I get to the stop sign at Showlander and I am going to take a left turn if I'm going home or if I'm trying to get to Interstate 10. Uh, I am changing direction. I'm leaving here and going east and then I'm turning north. Uh, it's a change of direction. But I want you to consider something that really in the first part of the definition that's more profound and more applicable to our Christian life. And that it is to alter or change from one purpose or effect to another. What is it God wants to do? What are they saying here? Turn us, O God. Change our purpose, our function. When I was in college, I had a few different jobs in college. And <coughs> for about a year, a year and a half, I worked at a place called Russell Stanley uh, Corporation. And at that time, in, uh, in the mid-80s, it was... <clears throat> plastic drums, commercial industrial barrels, were kind of a new thing. They had come out a few years before, uh, and they had these big plastic rings that had to be pressed onto them uh, because the corners, they hadn't kind of figured out the thicknesses and the corners. Well, this company that I worked for had made those, but the plant that they were building in the town where I lived uh, was going to be new in the sense that it was going to make them with one, one mold. There was no add-ons. There was nothing else to put on it. It was just one simple operation. Uh, and so I hired on there. I was actually, uh, aside from the plant manager, uh, one of the very first people that they hired in that location. And I'm just a young kid, about 18 or 19 years old. And, and so I'm there as they're, they're bringing all this stuff in. And, uh, you know, I always knew of Mauser as being a German rifle manufacturing company. Uh, they're famous for manufacturing munitions and arms during World War II and pre that date. But then the restrictions placed upon them after World War II, uh, they turned their attention to other more industrial things or commercial things. And uh, they made the blow molding machine that was bought. It was about, uh, it was a several million dollar machine. There were two uh, German engineers that were flown in from Germany uh, at that point to assemble it and to calibrate it and to get it all together. There were two big silos in a railroad that would rail that were laid to bring in the uh, the resin that was going to be melted down to make these that was brought into the building uh, and so these silos were filled up with these little polyurethane resin uh, pellets and uh, when the machine started there was a mold and we made 55 gallon drums and we made 30 gallon drums and we made 15 gallon drums and so whenever the machine got fired up uh, it, it had one little tube of melted plastic that came down and the mold closed. And once the mold closed, there were two little things that spiraled up. You could hear them ratcheting 
up and those were going to make the uh, the bungs uh, where the, the the lid or the caps that would go on there uh, they were going to make the bung holes they would be threaded uh, <clears throat> already by the machine and then you would hear the air blow into it and it would pop and then about 15 or 20 seconds later that mold would open and here's this perfectly formed drum uh, and we would take it out and it would have a little bit of flash all the way around it from the parting line of the mold and we our job was basically to cut all that flash and trim it off uh, to lift it up and then to put the bungs in it and then just to send it over get ready to and just like that I mean the, the stuff melted it came down it blew it out uh, and then you put in you cut the flash off you put in the two caps it was ready to go on a truck and ship and so but when it came time to go from making the 55-gallon drum to the 30, then you had to change out the mold. You had to stop production. You had to shut everything down. You had to get all of that plastic that's in the machine out before it hardened. Then you had to remove one mold and put in another because your function was changing. When I worked at Mueller Valve Company, it was a lot more complex process. You had to make a sand core that went into the mold that the liquid iron was poured over. And then you had to send it down a big conveyor belt to shake all the sand out of it. It was really loud and dirty. Then you had to take little handheld grinders and jackhammers to get all of the flash off from the parting lines of the mold. Then you had to machine it. Then you had to paint it. Then you had to assemble it. I mean, it was a massive production to make. And when you went from one size there to another, it was really a big deal. Why? Because you're changing the purpose. If you were making castings for a fire hydrant as opposed to a gate valve, if you were making a 36-inch valve rather than a 2-inch valve, there was a huge difference in the product that you were making, and there had to be a turn. If you work in one of the plants <coughs> or have worked in one of the plants, you really understand what I'm talking about here. Turn us, oh God. Repurpose me. It's not just a matter of, hey, I'm walking down the road. And, and honestly, this morning, there are a lot of people in the service that probably don't need a massive radical change of purpose in your life. You're living for God, you're serving God, but things are kind of grown. And what you really need is just a slight change of direction. Turn me. Maybe you just need to go left at the fork in the road. Maybe... You need to make a 90-degree turn. Maybe you need to make a U-turn. But you need to change the direction. But there are others here this morning that need a change of purpose, that need our life by the Spirit of God to be repurposed into that which pleases God, to be repurposed, to be recalibrated, to uh, be set up anew, uh, to be radically transformed. Hey, listen. Uh, Sonia and I went through that when we were in our mid-20s and we had drifted away from God and we had been uh, brought up in, in Christian homes and gone to Christian schools and met in a Bible college and, uh, and then drifted away from God in the early years of our marriage and, uh, and God brought us back and when we gave our heart back to the Lord, uh, there was a major change in the way that we lived. Everything in our life was repurposed. It was not simply a slight change of life it was a radical change of life if you're here this morning i can tell you uh, almost 30 years later that it was well worth it 
that I look back, we look back with no regrets that God, re in, in, that God interceded and re-interjected himself into our life. Listen, if you need this morning to alter or change the course of the purpose of your life, that's nothing to be ashamed of. That is the spirit of God working in your heart, drawing you back to God so that he can use your life and make it productive for him. Let God work in your heart. They come and they said, turn us. They were beyond asking, in their case, for a change in their circumstances. They're not just simply asking, hey, God, get rid of our enemies. They're really making life miserable. No, they said, turn us and cause thy face to shine. Turn us. Change direction. And we look at this and we look at their heart's desire. They were ready for a change and a change of direction of heart. They were dissatisfied with their position and they were desperate for God. Notice in verse 2. <coughs> Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Not before Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh existed, but in front of, in that sense of the word before. And that's Benjamin, or Ephraim and Manasseh in the uh, northern reaches of the kingdom and the easternmost reaches of the kingdom. Hey, before us, cause thy face to shine. And so they're desiring a change of direction and they're desperate for God. Three th four things I want to consider this morning. Uh, and number one, consider this. Number one, consider the condition of the people. The condition of the people. In verse number 16, he says, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Speaking about his vineyard, this vine that God brought out of Egypt, this vine that God prepared a place for, this vine that God has planted and caused to take deep root. They are under uh, the condition of being burned up by the holiness of God. And three things to consider about this. First, consider that it says that they are burned up. It speaks of destruction. It speaks to their life being in shambles. And I've been a pastor long enough, I've been in ministry long enough to understand that no matter what we look like when we come through the doors, that it is very likely that though everything may look like it's great on the outside, that there's somebody here this morning whose life is in shambles. Years ago, I had a, I think it was not long after we got here, so it was not that many years ago. Uh, but I, we're the type of people that... <clears throat> We don't go to the doctor unless we're dying, and we don't go to the dentist unless we can't take the pain anymore. Um, that's just kind of the way that we operate. And so, so it's sometimes we've kind of been conditioned that way out of necessity over the years, but, uh, but that's kind of our normal MO. And so I, I got this toothache, and I just couldn't bear it anymore. And I'm, I'm looking. I've even gone so far at times to buy the little dental pick so I can kind of prod around and poke and figure out how bad is my problem. Do I really have to? Do I really have to go do something about this? I'll go to the drugstore and buy like the little packages of uh, wax or whatever to cram down in the hole to try to buy a few more weeks of, of uh, being pain-free before I go. <coughs> and it's not about being afraid to go. It's, it's, it's uh, and, and and most of our married life and ministry, it's been more about, we don't know how we're going to pay the bills, so we're just going to deal with it. Uh, and so I go to the dentist. Finally, I, I cave in and I go, and I'm, I can't find any real problem with the tooth. And, and then he shows me, he says, yeah, it looks great, but there's a little hole right at the gum line back there. And that's a big molar back on the side. 
And so he numbs it up and he says, uh, what do you want me to do with it? And I said, well, the cheapest thing to do is pull it, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, then pull it. And so I'm, I'm not, I, I know I ought to be more interested in trying to save it if it can be saved, but, uh, but I have no compassion there. So I, I just said, it's got to go. And so he gets it all numbed up and I'm laid back in the chair and, and then he gets his tool and I can feel him put the pliers around it or whatever he used. And as soon as I saw his arm flex, I heard that tooth shatter. And then it kind of worried me. Not, it didn't hurt. He had it all kind of numbed up. So, but I thought, what if there's nothing left for him to grab hold of? What's he going to do now? And so, but somehow or another, he held on to enough of it uh, that it, it, it came out without too much trouble, for which I was grateful. But you know, on the outside, just looking at that tooth, it looked fine. But there was just one little spot, and it let decay take place. And though it looked good on the outside, inside it was rotten and gone. There are a lot of people that come to church that way. Everything looks great on the outside, but inside. And the slightest little bit of pressure from the Holy Spirit or from the world or from a tragedy can cause your whole world to shatter if I don't let God turn me. When we come and we look and consider the condition of the people, they are in a time of God's judgment, so there's destruction. They're burned up. Their life is in shambles. Secondly, consider uh, under, under the condition of the people that they are cut down. Remember his analogy here is that Israel is a vine. They are cut down. They have been severed from their life-giving roots. In other words, they're hopeless. We experimented last year with a, a little bit of a garden in our backyard, and I, I built these two boxes, and I overcrowded them. And then I got to the end, and I had bought a couple of cantaloupe plants, and, uh, and so I didn't have anywhere to put them, so I just took a bag of dirt, uh, and dumped it in uh, two bags of dirt and dumped it at the end of the box. And I said, well, I hate to just throw them away. So I'm just going to stick them here and see what happens. I was careful with those stupid vines all year long. I mean, if you've ever had a cantaloupe, you know the vines just grow forever. So I'm out there and I'm moving the vine so I don't get it with the weed eater and so I don't run over it with a lawnmower and I'll mow a little section. Then I'll go back and I'll move it again. And, uh, and I'm just wanting to see. And so I did this all summer long. And then it got to about September, and they finally started to get some fruit growing on them. And I mean, I had a couple on there that were looking good. One in particular, it was getting to be about softball size, and it was looking great. And I'm, I'm sort of kind of trying to be careful. And I whacked the vine with a weed eater. <clears throat> There's just no way to fix that. There's not anything you can do. And I'm, I've looked at it for a minute, and I thought, you idiot. You've been so careful all summer long. And now it's hot and you don't feel good, so you're just you're just trying to be in a hurry. And I thought, oh man. And she was excited because it had fruit on it. And I had to go in and face the music. And uh, you know, it just it just it, there was nothing about it that was good. It was just not a good situation. And so it was gone. It was cut off from its root. The root was still fine. 
You know, and God gives us an analogy of a vine and this vineyard. It's, you know, you can, you can see vineyards have massive fires and have great loss and destruction of the plant. But if the root is okay, it'll grow back. They're going through a time where they've been cut off by the vineyard owner from the root because their fruit's corrupt. Melvin that we visited yesterday, he had a tree of oranges that never got picked and they're all kind of black on the bottom and they've got some kind of disease that's got into them and he hadn't figured out what the problem is or how to do it. We used to have some peach trees kind of like that that got brown rot. Man, they looked great when they blossomed out when they first started growing, but right before they got ripe, they got rotten. Once they get that way, there's really nothing you can do. They were cut off. And, and listen, if God reaches out to me repeatedly and I will not respond to him, when he brings judgment, my condition is going to be someone who is undergoing the chastening hand of a loving father. But he will burn me up. He will cut me down so that I can be made healthy. I don't want to be severed from the life-giving root of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to put myself in what would feel like to me a hopeless condition. Though as long as the Lord Jesus is a part of the solution, there's always hope. Thirdly, consider that they're crying out. They're desperate for God. They're crying out for God to do something in their life. He is the blessed hope this morning. First of all, this morning, consider the condition of the people. They're burned up, they're cut down, they're crying out. Secondly, consider this, the consensus of the people. What is the consensus of the people? What is it that the people now are saying? And three thoughts on this just quickly, and I would say this, they're, they're demonstrate that here in verse number 3 and in verse number 7 and in verse number 19. Turn us again, O Lord, and cause thy face to shine. The consensus of the people, first of all, is that they stopped seeing how bad others needed God and realized that they were the ones who needed God. You know what the first step <coughs> to someone coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? It's the first step to someone coming to the uh, Lord and getting their spirit right for Him. You know what the first step into bringing uh, a unity back into a church where it's been severed? It's when all of the people come together and rather than pointing the finger and trying to figure out why everybody else is the problem and why everybody else needs God and why, where everybody else has failed and how everybody else has messed things up, they begin to say, I'm the problem. And sometimes our attitude can be the problem. Sometimes our hyper-protectivity can be the problem. You know, sometimes I mean, you just got to get to a point where you learn to laugh at yourself. And, and sometimes you have to get to a point where you just don't take yourself too seriously. I think a lot of times our problem in a Christian life, uh, especially in, in the leadership side of things, is that we just, sometimes we just take little things too seriously. We want them to be as good as they can be. We want to do things to the best of our ability. Uh, and, and we want to do things in a way that please and honor the Lord. But, but we're going to make mistakes and people are going to make mistakes. And, uh, and there's going to be hiccups and problems along the way. Well, when those things happen, just take them in stride and uh, do our best to love the Lord and to correct things and move forward. Uh, but let's not let it destroy our whole love and livelihood for each other and for God. They come here and they have a consensus. 
They're not pointing across the street at his vineyard and saying that's where the disease came from. They're not pointing across over here and saying, well, you, opened, you left the gate open and that let the enemy in. They're past all that. They've come to the place where they're just saying, as a people, turn us, O Lord, and cause thy face to shine. We have a revival meeting scheduled beginning on Easter Sunday. I'm looking forward to that tremendously. But just because there is a revival meeting on the calendar doesn't mean that revival is going to come. Nor does it mean that revival has to wait until April 21st before it gets here. To shine. Not worried about my shiny face. Not worried about uh, the, the special music shiny face. Not worried about the greeter's shiny face or the nursery worker's shiny face. I'm worried about is God's face shining on us. We need God's presence. We need God's power. We need God to be working in our hearts. And listen, I, what I'm saying this morning is this, is that from my perspective, Brother Joey, I need God's face shining on me. I need God's face shining in my life. I can't help God's face shine in your life until I've allowed it to shine in mine. And I need to be less concerned about getting Brother Larry Malloy's uh, face to shine and God's power to shine on him until I make sure that it's shining here. Where's our focus? Where's our attention? The consensus of the people is turn us. And what I'm saying this morning, not that I think that as a church we've got a, a, a big bunch of problems. I think God has blessed us tremendously and, uh, and I love our church and I love coming together to worship with God's people. But the consensus of the people is turn us. God, show your face. God, meet with us. God, pour out your power. Consider three thoughts about this. First, they stopped seeing how bad others needed God and realized that I am the one who needs God. Secondly, they sought the face of God. Cause thy face to shine. Are you, as an individual this morning, an individual Christian, an individual member of Victory Baptist Church, a, an interested guest this morning that is seeking God's will and direction for your life. Are you pleading with God? Are you seeking God? Are you searching God individually? God, make your face shine on me. See, when I come hungry, God is ready to move. When I come before him with an appetite, he's ready to set the table. There's not much things that are, many things that are more frustrating, I think, to, uh, to uh, a lady that's worked hard uh, to prepare a, a lavish meal for her family, only to have the family sit down at the table and just kind of nibble at it because they've lost their appetite because they didn't wait until it was time. God wants us to come to him hungry. God wants us to come to him prepared. God wants us to come to him seeking his face. They sought the face of God. Consider not only did they seek the face of God, but they were desperate for God's presence. Three times, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. And that term, Lord God of hosts, is important to understand. They were under attack from the enemy. And when they identified God as the God of hosts, 